the Drabblecast, episode 254. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. HP Lovecraft Month continues here on the Drabblecast, and we've got a cyclopean treat for you this week. But first, as usual, to get our mouths watering, a hundred-word story appetizer. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into submissions at drabblecast.org. Who knows, yours might wind up on the show. This week's comes from Jay Forbes Stimson, and it's called The Cats in the Walls. Jay is a perennially underemployed microbiologist taking a break from political campaigns to work with a lesser grade of biohazard, high school kids. He's recently returned to his family's ancestral home in northern New Hampshire, but is sadly lacking in a dark heritage. He does, however, have a cat. The hacking hairball noise jolts me awake. Hands shaking, I swig the last of my coffee. That hideous purring is louder now. How can my co-workers mistake it for refrigeration? It's deafening, maddening, surrounding me. I'm the lone guardian of tomorrow's special. Something soft brushes my leg. I leap onto the counter, searching for my assailant. Slitted eyes all around. Squamous bodies with whiskery faces ooze from the cabinets and the two small spaces beneath appliances. I fumble for my squirt gun and squeeze the trigger. Empty. I faint. The chef wakes me, angrily brushing away salmon bones. I'm so fired. Nice one. Wherever there are rats in the walls, I suppose one might also expect to find cats in the walls. Like toves and rats, right? And that leads us into this week's story, and next week's story, The Wreck of the Charles Dexter Ward by Elizabeth Bear and Sarah Manette. Miss Bear lives in Massachusetts and is the author of a number of novels and short stories which have won her two Hugo Awards, the John W. Campbell Award, a Sturgeon Award, a Locus Award, an Asimov's Reader's Choice Award, and an honorable mention for the Philip K. Dick Award. Her partner in crime is Miss Sarah Monette, a writer from Wisconsin whose short stories appear all over the place, including Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, Alchemy, Weird Tales, Strange Horizons, and she also has several novels out by Ace Books. She and Elizabeth Bear have a great book written together called Companion to Wolves from Tor Books. I highly recommend it. And if you're just now joining us in the Bear Monette collaborative, unique Lovecraft peppered universe with pirates, giant living spaceships, and badass extra dimensional critters, I recommend you check out their previous short stories appearing here on the Drabblecast Boojum in episode 202, and Mongoose in episode 170, which won the listener voted Drabblecast People's Choice Award for Best Story in 2010. Really good stuff. As with all the other Lovecraft-inspired fiction this month, The Wreck of the Charles Dexter Ward is an original commissioned story, first appearing here and now on your favorite podcast. So we hope you do enjoy it. And if you're not familiar with the name Charles Dexter Ward, be sure to Google it after the show. It's one of my faves. For the time being, though, we've got bigger fish to fry. Without further ado, we bring you The Wreck of the Charles Dexter Ward by Elizabeth Bear and Sarah Manette.
Part 1 Six weeks into her involuntary tenure on Faraday Station, Cynthia Feuerwerker needed a job. She could no longer afford to be choosy about it either. Her oxygen tax was due, and you didn't have to be a medical doctor to understand the difficulties inherent in trying to breathe vacuum. You didn't have to be, but Cynthia was one. Or had been, until the allegations of malpractice and unlicensed experimentation began to catch up with her as they had done here at Faraday six weeks ago. She supposed she was lucky that the crew of the Boojum ship, Richard Trevithick, had decided to put her off here rather than just feeding her to their vessel, but she was having a hard time feeling the gratitude. For one thing, her medical skills had saved both the ship and several members of the crew in the wake of a pirate attack. For another, they'd confiscated her medical supplies before dumping her, and made sure the whole of the station knew the charges against her. Which was a death sentence, too, and a slower one than going down the throat of a boojum along with the rest of the trash. So it was with cold desperation that they had driven Cynthia here, to the sharp side of this steel desk in a rented station office, staring into the face of a bald old Arkhamer whose jowls quivered with every word he spoke. His skin was so dark she could just about make out the patterns of tattoos against the pigment, black on black brown. Your past doesn't bother me, Dr. Foyworker, he said. His sleeves were too short for his arms, so five centimeters of fleshy wrist protruded when he gestured. I'll be very plain with you. We have need of your skills, and there is no guarantee any of us will be returning from the task we need them for. Cynthia folded her hands over her knee. She had dropped a few credits on a public shower and a paper suit before the interview, but anybody could look at her haggard face and the bruises on her elbows and tell she'd been sleeping in maintenance corridors. You mentioned this was a salvage mission. I understand there may be competition. Pirates, other dangers. Not to mention the social danger of taking up with an arc of our vessel. If I stay here, I face the social danger of an airlock. I'm a good doctor, Professor Wandry. I wasn't stripped of my license for any harm to a patient. No. He agreed, drawing it out. She knew he must have her CV in his heads-up display. But rather, for seeking after forbidden knowledge. Galileo and Derleth and Chen sought forbidden knowledge, too. That got us this far. Onto a creaky, leaky, Saturn orbit station that stank of ammonia despite exterminators working double shifts to keep the toves down. She watched his eyes and decided to take a risk. An Arkhamer professor ought to be sympathetic to that. Wandry's lips were probably lush once, but years and exposure to the radiation that pierced inadequately shielded steel ships had left them lined and dry. Despite that, and the jowls, and the droop of his eyelids, his homely face could still rearrange itself beautifully around a smile. Cynthia waited long enough to be sure he wouldn't speak before adding, You know I don't have any equipment. We have some supplies, and the vessel we're going to salvage is an ambulance ship, the Charles Dexter Ward. You should be able to procure everything you need aboard it. In my position as senior officer of the Jarmulowitz Astronomica, I am prepared to offer you a full share of the realizations from the salvage expedition, as well as first claim on any medical goods or technology. Suspicion tickled Cynthia's neck. What else do you expect to find aboard an ambulance, Professor? 
data. Research. The Jarmulowitz Astronomica is an archive ship. Next dicey question. What happened to your ship surgeon? Aneurysm. She was terribly young, but it took her so fast. There was nothing anyone could do. She'd just risen from apprentice and hadn't yet taken one of her own. We'll get another from a sister ship eventually, but there's not another Arkhamer vessel at Faraday now, or within three days' travel, and we'll lose the salvage if we don't act immediately. How many shares in total? A full share is one percent. It was too much. This was a trap. And a chance to practice medicine again. A chance to read the medical files of an Arkhamer archive ship. She had 13 hours to find a better offer by the letter of the law. Then it was the big nothing, the breath sucker, and her eyes freezing in their tears. And there wasn't a better offer, or she wouldn't have been here in the first place. I'll come. Wandry gave her another of his beatific smiles. He slid a tablet across the rented desk. Cynthia pressed her thumb against it. A prick and a buzz, and her blood and print sealed the contract. Get your things. You can meet us at Dock 6 in 30 minutes. I'll come now, she said. Oh, one more thing. That creak as he stood was the spring of the trap's jaw slamming shut. Cynthia had heard the like of it before. She sat and waited, prim and stiff. The Charles Dexter Ward. She nodded. It was a live ship. He might have interpreted her silence as misunderstanding. A boujum, I mean. An ambulance ship and a live ship? Cynthia said. We are all gonna die. Wandry smiled, standing, light on his feet in the partial gravity. Everybody dies, he said. Better to die in knowledge than in ignorance. The sleek, busy tug Veronica Lodge hauled the cumbersome, centuries-accredited monstrosity that was the Jarmulowitz Astronomica out of Saturn's gravity well. Cynthia stood at one of the Arkhamer ship's tiny fish-eye observation ports, watching the vast, misty curve of the pink-gray world beneath, hazy and serene, turning in the shadows of her moons and rings. Another steel ship was putting off from Faraday Station simultaneously. She was much smaller and newer and cleaner than the Jarmulowitz Astronomica, which in turn was dwarfed by the Bujums who flashed bioluminescent messages at each other around Saturn's moons. The steel ship looked like it was headed in system, and for a moment Cynthia wished she were on board, even knowing what would be waiting for her. The Richard Trevithick had not been her first disaster. She could not say, though, that she had been lured on board the Jarmolowitz Astronomica under false pretenses. The ship's crew of scholars and their families badly needed a doctor. Uncharitably, Cynthia suspected that they needed specifically a non-Arkhamer doctor who would keep her mind on her patients. The lost doctor, Martha Patterson Sneed had been her name, might have been a genius, but as the Jarmulowitz Astronomica said goodbye to the Veronica Lodge and started on her stately way toward the Charles Dexter Ward, Cynthia found herself treating a great number of chronic vitamin deficiencies and other things that a non-genius but conscientious doctor should have been able to keep on top of. 
Cynthia's patients were very polite and very grateful, but she couldn't help being aware that they would have preferred a genius who let them die of scurvy. Other than nutritional deficiencies, the various cancers of space and prenatal care, the most common reason for Cynthia to see patients were the minor emergencies and industrial accidents inevitably suffered in lives spent aboard a geriatric steel ship requiring constant maintenance and repair. She treated smashed fingers, sprained wrists, and quite a few minor decompression injuries. She was splinting the ankle of a steamfitter's apprentice and undergraduate gas giant meteorologist. Many Arkhamers seemed to have two roles, one relating to ship's maintenance and one relating to academic research, when the young man frowned at her and said, You aren't what I expected. She'd forgotten his name. She glanced at the chart. He was Jamie McReady Burlingame, traded from the Burlingame Astrophysica Tersi. He had about twenty Terran years and a shock of orange hair that would not lie down, nor observe anything resembling a part. Because I'm not an Arkhamer? She asked, probing the wrist joint to be sure it really was a sprain and not a cracked bone. Everybody knows you're not one of us. He twitched slightly. She held him steady and noted the place. But when she glanced at his face, she realized his distress was over having said something more revealing than he intended. She said, Some people aren't pleased about it. He looked away. She reached for the inflatable splint, hands gentle, and did not push. People told doctors things, if the doctors had the sense to keep quiet. His pale, spotted fingers curled and uncurled. Finally, he answered, Wandry got in some trouble with the faculty senate, I hear. My advisor says Wandry was high-handed, and he's lucky he has tenure. Cynthia kept her head down, eyes on her work. Jamie sighed as she fitted the splint and its numbing, cooling agents began to take effect. That should help bring the inflammation down, she told him. But as Jamie thanked her and left, she wondered if she ought to be grateful to Wandry or if she ought to consider him her patron. But she wasn't grateful. He had taken advantage of her desperation, which was not a matter for gratitude even if it had saved her life, and the Arkhamers didn't seem to think in terms of patronage and clients. They talked about apprentices and advisors, and nobody expected Cynthia to be Wandry's apprentice. She also noticed, as the days drew out into weeks, that nobody was approaching her about taking an apprentice of her own. She was just as glad, for she had no illusions about her own abilities as a teacher, and no idea how one person could go about imparting a medical school education from the ground up. But it made her feel acutely isolated on a ship that was home to several hundred people, and she lay in her hammock during her sleep shift and worried about what would happen to the shy, solemn Arkhamer children when she was no longer on board. At other times, she reminded herself that the Jermolowitz Astronomica was part of a network of Arkhamer ships, and, as Wandry had said, they would require another doctor. They were probably in the middle of negotiating the swap, or the lease, or marriage, or whatever it was they did. But when she was supposed to be asleep, she worried.
They knew they were nearing the Charles Dexter Ward for days before he showed up on even the longest of the long-range scanners. The first sign was the Cheshires, the tentacled creatures so common on Arkhamer vessels, which patrolled the steel ship's cabins and corridors, hunting toves and similar trans-dimensional nuisances that might slip through the interstices in reality and cause a potentially deadly infestation. One reason Arkhamer ships were tolerated at stations like Faraday was because the Cheshires would hunt station vermin just as heartily. Boojums took care of their own pest control. Normally, the Cheshires, dozens or hundreds of them, Cynthia never did get a good count, slept and hunted seemingly at random. One might spend hours crouched before the angle of two intersecting bulkheads, tendrils all focused intently on one seemingly random point, its soft body slowly cycling through an array of colors that could mean anything or nothing at all. Cynthia often had to shoo two or three out of her hammock at bunk time, and like station cats, they often returned to steal body heat once she was asleep. But as the Jarmolowitz Astronomica began encountering the space-time distortions that inevitably accompanied the violent death of Abujam, the ship's Cheshires became correspondingly agitated. They traveled in groups, and any time Cynthia encountered two sleeping, there was always one keeping watch, if a creature with sixteen eyes and no eyelids could be said to sleep. Cynthia tried not to speculate about their dreams. The second sign was the knocking. Random, frantic banging, as if something outside the ship wanted to come in. It came at unpredictable intervals, and would sometimes be one jarring boom, and sometimes go on for five minutes. It upset the Cheshires even more. They couldn't hear the headache-inducing noise, being deaf, but they could feel the vibrations. Every time Cynthia was woken in her sleep shift by that terrible knocking, she'd find at least one, and usually more like three, Cheshires under her blankets with her, trying to hide their wedge-shaped heads between her arms and body. She'd learned from her child patients, who lost their shy formality in talking about their playmates, how to pet the Cheshires, how to use her voice in ways they could feel, and she would lie there in the dim green glow of the one working safety light and pet the trembling Cheshires until she fell asleep again. The knocking was followed by what the Arkhamers called pseudo-ghosts. One of them explained the phenomenon in excruciating detail while Cynthia cleaned and stitched a six-inch-long gash on her forearm. Not the spirits of the dead, but microbursts of previous and future times. Or rather, future probabilities, since the future has yet to be determined. Of course, Cynthia said. The girl's name was Hester Ayobo Jarmolowitz. She was tall and skinny and iron black, and she had laid her arm open trying to repair the damage done to an interior bulkhead by the percussive force of the knocking. So the woman I almost ran into this morning before she vanished in a burst of static? Was that Martha Patterson? Probably, Hester said. Not very tall, wiry, freckled skin? Yes. Keep your arms still, please. That was Dr. Patterson. Before Dr. Patterson, we had Dr. Belafonte, so you may see him as well. And your future doctors, whoever they may be. Cynthia saw Dr. Patterson several times, and once an old man who had to have been Dr. Belafonte. But the only future ghost she saw was herself. Her hair longer, grayer, her clothes shabbier, standing beside the exam table with a scowl on her face that could have been used for spot welding. 
What frightened Cynthia most, aside from the nauseating, almost electric shock of walking into the medical bay and seeing herself, was the way that scowl had looked as if it had been carved into her face. It made no sense. Why would she still be on the Jermolowitz Astronomica? She didn't want to stay, and the Arkhamers clearly didn't want to keep her. But then she thought, in the middle of autoclaving her instruments, Wandry trapped me once. That was not a nice thought, and it brought others in its wake about pitcher plants and the way they started digesting their prey before the unfortunate insects were dead, about the way her future self's face had looked as if it were eroding around that scowl. She schooled herself for being morbid and tried to focus on her patience and on her readings in the ship's archives. Wandry had at least kept his word about that. But she was very grateful, as well as surprised, when, a few days after their conversation about pseudo-ghosts, Hester Ayobo marched into the medical bay and announced, Isolation is bad for human beings. I'm going to eat lunch with you. Cynthia toggled off the display on the patient file she had been updating. You are? I mean, thank you, but you can tell me about your studies. She gave Cynthia a bright, uncertain, sidelong look. Like a falcon, Cynthia thought trying to make friends with a plow horse. And Cynthia laughed and got up and said, Or you can tell me about yours. Which Hester was glad to do, volubly and at length. She was an astrobiologist, the same specialty as Wandry, and Wandry was in fact a member of her committee, which seemed to be a little like being a parent and a little like being a boss. Hester studied creatures like Boojums and Cheshires and the dreadful Bandersnatches, creatures that had evolved in the cold and airless dark between the stars, or the cold and airless interstices of space-time. She was very excited by the chance to study the Charles Dexter Ward, and on their third lunch, Cynthia found the nerve to ask her, Do you know how the Charles Dexter Ward died? Hester stopped in the middle of bringing a slice of hydroponically cultivated tomato to her mouth. It is something of a mystery, but I can tell you what we do know. It was more than Wandry had offered. Cynthia listened avidly. As Wandry had told her, the Charles Dexter Ward had been an ambulance ship, or more accurately, a mobile hospital. He had been in service for more than ten solar, well known throughout the farther and darker reaches of the system. His captain was equally well known for disregarding evidence of pirate status when taking patients on board, though there was no formal recognition of neutrality once you got past the sovereignty of Mars. The Charles Dexter Ward was one boujum that no pirate would attack. Even the Mego, Hester said. Although no one knows why. Cynthia tried to hide the reflexive curl of her fingers, even though there had been no hint of special meaning in Hester's tone. What became of his crew? Probably still aboard, Hester said. Possibly some are even alive. Although you can't eat boujum. It's not what we'd consider meat. How did the Jermolowitz Astronomica find out about him? Another Arkhamer ship picked up a distress buoy. They couldn't stop for her. And Hester's sly look told Cynthia that, friends or not, were they friends? Hester would never tell an outsider why. But they sent us a coded burst as closest relative. We may not beat other salvage attempts even so. The beacon just said that the ship was moribund. No reason given. Possibly the captain didn't know. 
Or if something happened to him, it might have been Junior Crew who sent the probe. Cynthia nodded. She put her hand on her desk, about to lever herself to her feet as Hester sucked down a length of tofu. Huh. Cynthia said. Do Boojums die of natural causes? Lips shining with broth, Hester cocked her head. They have to die of something, I suppose. By the time they were within a hundred kilometers of the dead Boojum, the banging and the manifestations were close to constant. Cynthia dodged her own shadow in sickbay almost reflexively, as she might a surgical nurse with whom she established a practiced partnership. It was a waste of mental and physical energy. I could just walk through myself. But she couldn't bring herself to stop. Hester brought her cookies, dropping the plate between Cynthia and the work screen on which she was studying what schematics she could find of the Charles Dexter Ward, spotty, wildly varying in architecture, or growth patterns, whatever one would call Abujam's internal design. We'll be there next watch, Hester said. You ought to rest. It's my work watch, Cynthia said. The cookies were pale, crisp soft, and fragrant with lemons and lavender. It was everything she could do to nibble one delicately, with evident pleasure, and save the others for later. Hester did not take one, though Cynthia offered. She said, I have another dozen in my locker. I like to bake on my rec watch. And you should rest. The President and Faculty Senate have sent around a memo saying that everybody who is not on watch should be getting as much sleep as possible. Cynthia glanced guiltily at her wrist piece. She had a bad habit of forgetting she'd turned notifications off. Something like a giant's fist thumped against the hull. She barely noticed. I should be cramming Boojum anatomy is what I should be doing. Hester smiled at her, but did not laugh. You've been studying it since we left Faraday. You have something to prove. You know what I have to prove. But she took a second cookie anyway, stared at it, and said, Hester, if you only see one ghost, does that mean that there's only one future? An interesting question. Temporal metadynamics aren't really my field. It may mean there are futures in which there are no people in that place. It may mean that the one particular future is locked in, I guess. Unavoidable? Inescapable. She grinned, plush lips a contrast to the wiry narrowness of her face and body. I'm going to go take my mandated nap. If you have any sense, you will too. You're on the away team, you know. Cynthia's startle broke the cookie in half. And get some sleep while you can. There's unlikely to be much time to rest once we reach the Charles Dexter Ward. Part 2 The corpse of the Charles Dexter Ward hung ten degrees off the plane of the ecliptic, in a crevice of space-time where it was very unlikely that anyone would just stumble across it. Cynthia had been called to the bridge for the first time in her tenure as ship's surgeon aboard the Jarmolowitz Astronomica. She stood behind the president's chair, wishing Professor Wandry were somewhere in sight. She'd been too nervous to ask after his current whereabouts, but an overheard comment suggested he was at his instruments below. She, on the other hand, was watching the approach to the ruined live ship with her own eyes, on screens and through the biggest expanse of transparent crystal anywhere on the ship. She rather wished she wasn't. The Boojum was a streamlined shape 
tumbling gently in the midst of its own web of tentacles. Inertia twisted them in corkscrews as the bosom rotated grandly around its center of mass, drifting further and further from the solar system's common plane. It was dark, no bioluminescence revealing the details of its lines. Only the sun's rays gently cupping the curve of the hull gave it form and mass. Around it, where Cynthia would expect to see the familiar patterns of stars burning in the icy void of the up and out, the big empty, the sky was shattered. A great mirrored lens, wrenched loose and broken into a thousand glittering shards, cast back crazy reflections of the Jarmulowitz Astronomica, the Charles Dexter Ward, and the steel ship already moored to the dead Boojum, a ship so scarred and dented that all that could be deciphered of its hull markings was the word Calico. It was a small ship. It couldn't boast more than a two- or three-man crew, and didn't worry Cynthia. What did worry her were all those jagged bits of mirror, all those uncalculated angles of reflection. The very things a mirror like that were meant to blind would be drawn to this jostling chaos, and with the Boojum dead, neither the Jarmulowitz Astronomica nor her competition had much in the way of defense. Unless the stupid stories Cynthia had been hearing all her life were true, and the Arkhamers had some sort of occult weaponry that nobody else knew about. Unfortunately, she was pretty sure they didn't. All right, said the president, loudly enough to cut through the two or three muttered discussions taking place at various points on the bridge. We have three immediate objectives. One, obviously, is the reason we're here. And she nodded at the derelict before them. The second is salvaging and neutralizing that reflecting lens, and the third is making contact with the calico over there. We need to see if we can come to a mutually beneficial agreement. Please talk to your departments. By no later than the top of the next shift, I want a roster of volunteers for EVA. I know some departments badly need the practice. She glanced at an elderly Arkhamer Cynthia did not know. There was clearly a story there by the way the man blushed and stammered, but Cynthia doubted she'd ever hear it. What about the calico? A voice said from the doorway. It was Wandry, and if he was in disgrace, he didn't seem to mind. Professor Wandry, the president said coolly. Are you volunteering? Of course, Wandry said, smiling at her affably. And since I imagine they've docked at the most useful point of um, ingress, may I suggest that you send the planned away team with me? There was a fraught silence. Cynthia stared fixedly at the nearest of the Charles Dexter Ward's blank, glazed eyes and cursed herself for 39 kinds of fool. Finally, the president said, Thomas, you're plotting something. I pursue knowledge, Madam President, said Wandry. As we all do. Or have you forgotten that I sat on your tenure committee? One of the junior scholars gasped. Cynthia did not look away from the Boojum's dead eye, but she could hear the smile in the President's voice when she said, Very well. Take Meredith and Hester and Dr. Foraverker and go find out what the Calico is doing. And remember to report back! The Jarmulowitz Astronomica possessed two landing craft, a lumbering scow called the T.H. White and an incongruously sporty little skimmer called the Caitlin R. Kiernan. 
The skimmer seated four, if nobody was too fussy about his or her personal space, and Hester knew how to fly it, which meant, Wondry said, herding his team toward the Caitlin R. Kiernan, that they didn't need to wait for one of the two people on board who could fly the TH White. The president was right, Cynthia thought, as she strapped herself in next to Meredith. Wandry was plotting something. He was almost bouncing with eagerness, and there was a gleam in his eye that she did not like. But she couldn't think of anything she could do about it from here. Hester ran through her pre-flight checks without letting Wandry hurry her. Meredith, a big blonde Valkyrie whose specialty was what she called Boujum Mathematics, apologized for crowding Cynthia with her shoulders and said, Could you see a cause of death, Dr. Forberger? No. Cynthia said. He just looked dead to me, but I don't know if I'd recognize a fatal wound on a bosom if I saw one. It probably didn't leave a visible mark, Wandry said from where he was riding shotgun. So far as our research has discovered, there are only two ways to kill a bosom. One is to cut it literally to pieces, a tactic which backfires disastrously far more often than it succeeds. The other, to deliver a systemic shock powerful enough to disrupt all of the creature's cardio and or synaptic nodes at once. That's one mother of a shock, Cynthia said, feeling unease claw its way a little deeper beneath her skin. Yes, said Wandry, and did not elaborate. Hester piloted the Caitlin R. Kiernan with more verve than Cynthia's stomach found comfortable. She found her safety harness and swallowed hard, and Meredith said kindly, Hester is one of the best young pilots we have. When I was a child, I wanted to jump ship on Lang Station and become a mechanic, Hester said cheerfully. I tried a couple of times, but they always brought me back. She piloted the Caitlin R. Kiernan in a low, swooping arc across the Charles Dexter Ward's forward tentacles, and they could see that Wandry's guess had been correct. The calico had succeeded in prying open one of the Charles Dexter Ward's airlocks, and the ship was moored partly within the Boosham. Cynthia hoped the Arkhamers had a better way in than that. As it turned out, They didn't, and Cynthia was unsettled to watch Meredith and Hester strap sidearms on over their pressure suits. Were they really expecting that much trouble from the crew of the Calico? And didn't Salvage Law give her first picking? Or would the Arkhamers' early intercept and beacon trump that? Cynthia had never encountered a dead Boosham before, and she had braced herself with the knowledge that there would be any number of things she wasn't expecting. But no amount of bracing or foreknowledge could have ever been sufficient for the stench of the Charles Dexter Ward, a feeder so intense Cynthia would have sworn she could pick up the scent through her helmet and before the airlock cycled. What that said about the spaceworthiness of the Caitlin R. Kiernan, Cynthia did not care to consider. What the cycling outer airlock doors revealed was more of a shock than it might have been if she hadn't already been dragging her tongue across her teeth in a futile effort to scrape the stench of death away. The membranes between the struts were not glossy with health, appearing dull and tacky instead, but the amazing stink that left her lightheaded and pained even within the oxygenated confines of her helmet had led her to expect, well, what course did decay take on a bosom? Writhing infestations, deliquescence, superating lesions. There was none of that, just the rigid stretch of intact-seeming corridor disappearing into the curvature of the dead ship, and the reek of putrescence. 
don't throw up in your helmet, Cynthia told herself. That would be one sure way of making things even less pleasant. The Charles Dexter Ward retained good atmospheric pressure, though Cynthia couldn't have attested to the air quality, and she didn't need to tongue on her suit intercom for Wandry and the others to hear her when she said, Isn't anything we salvage from this mess going to be unusable due to contamination? Meredith said, Anything sealed should be fine, and we wouldn't want unsealed medical supplies anyway. I can smell it through my suit. Wandry looked at her with curious intensity. Really? He said, brow wrinkling behind his faceplate. I don't smell anything. Maybe your suit has a bad filter. We do our best to check them, but, well... She shrugged, a clumsy gesture, but Cynthia understood. When everything the Arkhamers owned, from their clothes to their ship, was secondhand, salvaged, scavenged, there was only so much they could do. Maybe. She said although she wasn't sure, and from the look he gave her before he turned away, Wandry wasn't sure either. Let's see if we can't find the crew of the Caligo, he said. I am walking in a dead body, Cynthia said periodically to herself, but aside from the eye-blurring stench that no one else could smell, the only sign of death was the darkness. Every bosom Cynthia had ever traveled on had used its bioluminescence to illuminate any space its human crew and passengers were using, but the Charles Dexter Ward stayed dark. They proceeded cautiously. Cynthia remembered Hester saying the crew of the Charles Dexter Ward might still be alive somewhere in their dead ship, and there was the nagging question of the Calico's crew, a question that got naggier and naggier the farther they went without finding a single trace of them. We know they weren't on their ship, Hester muttered. Corin hailed them until she was hoarse. And they can't have been salvaging, Meredith said. None of the doors since the airlock had been forced open. My question, Cynthia said, is how long they've been here. And if they aren't salvaging, what are they doing? That was two questions, and actually she had a third. What did Wandry know that she and Hester and Meredith didn't? He didn't seem worried, and she had noticed after a while that although he wasn't in a hurry, he did seem to know where he was going. She didn't want to be the one to mention it, though. Not a good idea for the politely tolerated outsider. What else can you do on a dead Boujem? Hester demanded. Maybe, Cynthia said after a moment. Maybe they weren't here for salvage in the first place. Maybe they needed a hospital. Not all doctors are as laissez-faire as Captain Dimeshuller. The Calico's too small for piracy, Meredith said. But I agree with your general principle. If they aren't here for salvage... How do we find the operating theaters? Her question went unanswered as they came to a corridor junction and caught sight of another human being. He was in shirt sleeves rather than a pressure suit, wearing the uniform of the Interplanetary Ambulance Corps, dark blue with red piping and CDW embroidered on his sleeve. Across his chest were blazoned a row of symbols including a caracas, a red crescent, and the Chinese ideogram for heart. Despite being distracted by the medical symbols, Cynthia knew there was something wrong with him several seconds before she was able to identify why she thought so. And the man, youngish and tall, his skin fish-belly pale in the floodlights, stood and stared at them, his face so perfectly blank that Cynthia finally realized that was the problem. No relief, no anger, no fear, not even curiosity. 
Hello. She said, starting forwards and forcing brightness into her voice, as if she could compensate for his nullity. I'm Dr. Feuerwerker with the Jermalowitz Astronomica. Is your captain... And then she was close enough to see him clearly. Close enough to see that the shadow at his midsection was not a shadow, but a hole, jagged-edged and gaping where his stomach used to be. Close enough to see the greenish tinge to his pale skin. Her voice was thin and screechy in her own ears when she said, He's dead. What? said Hester. He's dead. He's been dead for weeks. But he's standing up. A dead body couldn't... Hester's voice dried up with a faint click as the dead man turned, giving them a good view of his disemboweled torso and started walking down the hall away from them. His locomotion wasn't perfect, but it was damn good for someone who'd probably been dead for three months. Hester started to blaspheme, and Meredith ungently hushed her. This was not the place to be attracting that kind of attention. It might be a parasite, Cynthia said, having run frantically through her knowledge of what could animate a corpse. Something that got through a gap in space-time when the Charles Dexter Ward died. We have to tell the Germolo it's Astronomica. Surprised, Cynthia realized her concern was not for herself, stuck here in the belly of a dead bosom, but for Jamie and the shy children and the Cheshire's Cynthia couldn't count. Can we call them from here? How far back? Calm yourself, Dr. Foyworker, said Wondry. What you see is not the work of a parasite. It is the pursuit of knowledge. That brought her up short. She looked at him, calm and sweating behind the faceplate of his pressure suit, and swallowed against a curl of bright nausea. You knew about this. The twitch in the corner of his lips was more disturbing than the dead man striding away from them. Hastily, Cynthia turned her attention forward again. There were medical school stories about the horrors Arkhamer doctors got up to. Cynthia had never credited them, considering them part of the general anti-Arkhamer bigotry that permeated so many institutions of higher learning. Now she wondered if she had been too willing in her conscientious open-mindedness to assume there was no truth behind the slander. Ooh, ethics now, Dr. Forverker. That's a new look on you. She stepped forward, following the dead man. Wandry and the other women jogged to catch up, their pressure suits rustling with the sudden movement. As Wandry fell back into stride beside Cynthia, she said, So when did the Charles Dexter Ward sign on an Arkhamer doctor? Wandry remained silent, though she waited after each sentence before adding the next. That's what got the ship killed, isn't it? That's the real motive behind coming here. Reanimation isn't a topic we commonly pursue, Wandry said. But if... if someone has made it work, think of the advance to human understanding, to medicine. <laughs> to shipping, Meredith said. There are a number of applications. Hester was beginning when Cynthia almost shouted, Are you fucking nuts? Every scare story I've ever heard about raising the dead says that either dying or coming back drives people mad. Are you really suggesting? Are you a scientist, Dr. Forwicker? Then I suggest you wait for the data. The walking cadaver did not move particularly fast. When she caught up to him, he turned to her, jaw moving. If he was trying to say something, the lack of lungs and diaphragm impeded the process. Upon closer inspection, he was a major and a registered nurse. 
The name on his shirt pocket read Nagao. His eyes, dull and concave where the ship's environment had begun dehydrating them, fastened on Cynthia's face through the helmet. His jaw worked again. Was he conscious? She wondered. The chill running up her back was so real that her head wrenched to one side. Did he know he was dead, eviscerated? Did he ever try to touch his stomach and have his fingers brush his spine? She wanted to apologize, even though Major Nagao's fate was none of her doing, but she too had sought after forbidden knowledge, not reanimation. At least the irony wasn't that cruel. She'd muttered those same words about science and the pursuit of knowledge, and told herself that Chen and Derleth would be pleased, that Galileo would be pleased. Had it been a lie? She didn't know. Chen and Derleth and Galileo had been dead for centuries. She couldn't ask them, and even this lunatic on the Charles Dexter ward couldn't bring them back. She remembered her burning certainty that the truth was there, attainable and valuable beyond any price, and she remembered Captain Wapa's expression too, that one flicker of horror before the captain got her game face back. It took a lot to rattle a Boojum captain, and Cynthia was not proud of the achievement. Wandry said crisply, Take us to Dr. Firenzo. Before Cynthia could find any words that weren't trite and false. And probably pointless, really. Dr. Feuerwerker, the man's missing nine-tenths of his vital organs. And if nothing else, Cynthia thought, now at least she had a name to hang the nightmare on. The corridors of the Charles Dexter ward were dark and silent as Cynthia followed the Arkhamers following the dead man. From time spent on the Richard Trevithick and other Boojums, she knew a little about their internal architecture, so she was fairly sure that they were heading away from the rending plates and tearing diamond teeth of the Charles Dexter Ward's mouth, and she couldn't help wondering if his crew had called him Charlie, the same way the Richard Trevithick's crew always referred to their Boojum as Ricky. It was a stupid thought, and wouldn't be banished. The anatomy of Boojums adhered to no principle that Terran mammals abided by, including bilateral symmetry, but if you were headed away from the mouth, you were probably headed toward the cloaca, and most ship systems were stuck as deep in the bulk of the Boojum as the bioengineers could get them. The Charles Dexter Ward, being a hospital ship, there was not one specific area that Cynthia would have identified as the sick bay. Rather, she and the others had passed corridor after corridor of clinical chambers and wards, rooms that Cynthia was sure would have reeked of disinfectants and that eternal powdery medical smell were it not for the eye-watering putrescence overwhelming everything. They found the operating theaters, which looked as if they'd been the scenes of intense guerrilla fighting, and Cynthia's pace slowed automatically, trying to reconstruct what had happened, where the defenders had been, how the line of attack had run, whether it was all human blood in horribly sticky pools, or if some of it was other colors. Dr. Forberger. Meredith said, pointing, and she saw that farther down the corridor, in the direction that Major Nagao was plodding, uninterested in what might have been the site of his own death, there was, for the first time in hours, a gleam of light that they hadn't brought with them from the Caitlin R. Kiernan. 
And as they followed the dead man, he dripped occasionally an irregular trail of brownish fluid on the corridor floor. Around the bend in the dead Boojum's corridor, Cynthia saw an open pressure hatch. A slice of light spilled across the floor and a glimpse of one of the medical bays. Within it, she could just make out some white-coated movement. She followed Wandry, she thought, because she had so little idea what else to do. This is how war crimes happen. People get overwhelmed and follow orders. If you were as brilliant as one of these Arkhamer doctors, you'd know what to do besides whatever Wandry tells you. And then she bit her lip inside the helmet and thought, If I were as brilliant as one of these Arkhamer doctors, the Richard Trevithick might be as dead as Charlie here. That thought chilled whatever part of her the quietly guiding dead man had missed. Something brushed Cynthia's right glove, then grabbed it. Her throat closed with fright, and she turned as she tried to pull away, looking down to see what horrible thing had caught her. But it was a suit gauntlet, tight against her own, and when she looked up again, she met Hester's gaze dimly through two helmet bubbles glazed with the reflective light of the lab up ahead. She'd stopped, lost in thought. The idea of being left out here in the dark with what the stars knew made her heart jump like a ship's rat in the claws of a Cheshire. She squeezed back and caught a flash of Hester's teeth, bright against the darkness of her face. They moved forward together, though any comfort from the other woman's presence was abrogated by a series of scraping sounds that Cynthia's medical ear easily identified as metal on bone. Five more steps brought them into the lab. Cynthia found herself fascinated by the way the light, clip-on work lighting trailing to batteries, not the bioloom, caught on the scratches on Meredith and Wandry's pressure suits as they stepped out of the shadows of the corridor. She was avoiding looking past them at whatever the lab contained, and their broad shoulders mercifully blocked most of the view. Then, Wandry stepped to one side to make room for her and Hester, and raised both hands to open the catches of his helmet. As he lifted it off, Cynthia had to fight the urge to reach out and slam it back into place, as if a standard, somewhat worn pressure suit was any protection in a situation like this. Cynthia stayed on suit air anyway. It made her feel a little better, and she noticed Meredith and Hester were in no hurry to uncouple their helmets either. Dr. Fiorenzo, Wandry said pleasantly. Allow me to introduce my colleagues. I take it you've had some success? Limited. Fiorenzo answered in a light contralto, turning from a dissection table upon which the twitching remains of something that couldn't possibly still be alive were pinned. She did not seem at all surprised to see them, and that Wandry apparently did not need to introduce himself. I'm pleased you're here. After the accident, Charlie dead and all the crew. Her face revealed grief, tension, relief. What would it be like, trapped alone, parsecs off any shipping lane, inside an enormous dead creature slowly rotting around you? The introductions were a scene of almost surreal cordiality. Fiorenzo was a narrow-shouldered, olive-skinned woman. Her face was smooth everywhere but at the corners of her eyes as she smiled, and she wasn't old enough to be going salt and pepper yet, though what few strands of grey there were stood out like velvet against the darkness of her hair. She wore it in a pixieish crop, like a lot of practical-minded spacers. I thought you'd be older. 
Cynthia didn't say, and the hellish mundanity of pleasantries carried out while the relic of Major Nagao stood against the far bulkhead, arms folded across his chest, watching cloudy-eyed but seemingly intent, as if he were following the conversation. She was spared from having to shake hands because Fiorenzo was gloved, and she was spared from having come up with something else to say when Fiorenzo paused at her name, frowned, and said, Hello, Verker. They threw you off the Richard Trevithick just before... Damn shame. That was good research. It's about time somebody found out what's in one of those biosuspension canisters. Cynthia managed not to step back, rocked by a peculiar combination of the warmth of a fellow scientist's regard and the horror of who exactly was praising her. Her jaw was still working an answer when Fiorenzo continued. Well, you're welcome here now. We'll find some things out, you and I. Maybe even a thing or two about the Migo. Thank you, Cynthia said weakly. She let Fiorenzo, Meredith, and Wandry step away. Hester crowded close and leaned their helmets together in order to whisper. What did you do? I thought everybody knew already. Tell me anyway. Cynthia couldn't quite figure out where to start. She was still fumbling when Hester broke and asked outright, You were trying to reverse engineer Amigo Canister? A vacant one, Cynthia said in weak protest. Not one with somebody inside. Sweet breath sucker, Hester said. Haven't you heard about what happened to the Lavinia Watley? A Boojum privateer vanished without a trace after pirating a cargo of the Migos canisters of disembodied brains. Rumor was that all hands, and even the ship herself, had wound up disassembled and carted off to the outer reaches of the solar system, living brains forever locked in metal tins, going immortally mad. Cynthia nodded tersely, lips thin. I didn't say it was a good idea. Hester looked like she wanted to say something else, but Wandry called her over. Cynthia stayed where she was, not wanting to intrude on in an Arkhamer conversation. Although, was Fiorenzo an Arkhamer? Cynthia had learned enough to recognize the names of the Arkhamer ships, all of them named for one of the nine which originally set out from Earth, and Fiorenzo wasn't one of them. But Wandry called her Dr. Fiorenzo, and she'd introduced herself the same way, Julia Philoma Fiorenzo. No Jarmolowitz or Burlingame or Dubois. So either she wasn't an Arkhamer, whom the Arkhamers treated like an Arkhamer, and Cynthia wasn't buying that for a second, or she was an Arkhamer, and her ship had disowned her. Well, gosh, Dr. Feuerwerker, I wonder why. Her ship had disowned her, but Wandry hadn't, and Cynthia remembered the comments about Wandry getting into trouble, remembered the President's suspicions, and knew that, yes, Wandry had brought them out here, not on a mission of mercy, but to check in on Fiorenzo's experiments, experiments which the rest of the Jarmolowitz Astronomica did not know about, or at least did not know were still ongoing. Sweet, merciful Buddha of the Breathsucker. Cynthia thought, and looked down to discover that she'd wandered over very much closer than she'd meant to, to the dissection table where Fiorenzo had been working when they came in. The creature on it had once been human. It should not still be alive. Or possibly, it wasn't. She twisted her head, forcing her gaze away from the wet holes where the thing's face had been, and found Major Nagao watching her. Watching? Staring at? Staring through? 
She had to squeeze her eyes shut and bite down hard on her lip to keep the bubble of hysteria from escaping, and when she opened her eyes again, she was staring down at the dead, twitching creature's chest, where, under the blood, the words Free Ship Calico Jack were still just barely legible. Cynthia stepped back, a big, overdramatic step that caught everyone's attention, Fiorenzo's voice dying in the middle of a sentence. Dr. Forworker, Wandry said with that nasty, snide tone that every teacher in the universe used when they'd caught you not paying attention in class. Cynthia opened her mouth without the least idea what was going to come out, and more than half convinced it was going to be. There's nothing to ensure freshness like harvesting them yourself, is there, Dr. Fiorenzo? But some remnant of self-preservation interfered, and what she said was... How did the Charles Dexter Ward die? What? Fiorenzo said. Wandry was frowning. Cynthia repeated the question. Oh, there was... the mirror broke. Fiorenzo said with a vague gesture. And the doppelkinder came. They killed the crew and the ship. How did you escape? Meredith asked, wide-eyed. Luck, I think, Fiorenzo said with a shrug that almost looked like a spasm and a bitter laugh. I was the pathologist, and I was in the morgue when it happened. I think they just couldn't smell me, and you know they don't last very long. Yes, like homicidal mayflies. They rarely lasted more than a few hours after you'd killed their primary host. Cynthia nodded and did not, did not look at the dissection table. And you've been here ever since? Fiorenzo offered a sad, slanted little smile. There's been nowhere I can go. Fiorenzo wanted, she said, to transfer her most promising experiments to the Jarmolowitz Astronomica. As she and Wandry and Meredith started a discussion of how that might be accomplished, Hester caught Cynthia by the arm and dragged her grimly out into the hallway, still within the light of Fiorenzo's rigged operating theater, but well out of earshot. There, Hester stopped and leaned into Cynthia's helmet again. She's lying. About what? Cynthia said, her mind still stuck blankly on that poor, twitching thing strapped down on Fiorenzo's operating table. Doppelkinder can't kill a Boojum. They won't even go after one. Boojums don't recognize their own reflections. Wait, what? Doppelkinder hunt in mirrors. Hester began with exaggerated patience. Not that. Cynthia said. She'd been terrified of Doppelkinder since her first civil defense class when she was five. Boojums don't see themselves in mirrors? Two-dimensional representations don't mean anything to them. Cheshires are the same way. Hester managed to smile, although it wasn't a very good one. That's why there's that folk saying about how you can't fool a Cheshire. The most cunning optical illusion ever created won't make them even twitch. And doppelkinder are dependent on optical illusions, Cynthia said, finally catching up to what Hester was trying to say. They don't eat people's eyes for the nutritional value. Right, but if the doppelkinder didn't kill the Charles Dexter Ward, what did? Hester folded her arms and gave Cynthia a flat, obdurate stare. I think she did. Fiorenzo? Cynthia spluttered a little, then caught herself and regrouped. Not that I don't believe she would do it in a heartbeat, but why? Why the Boojum, I mean, and for the love of the little fishy gods, how? Hester's gaze dropped. 
You were supposed to talk me out of it. It's a crazy idea, and I know it's because I'm jealous. Jealous? If Professor Wandry had even once shown this kind of interest in my work... She trailed off, her face twisting. I understand, Cynthia said, and dared to offer Hester's shoulder a clumsy pat. But Hester, I don't think you're wrong. I'm pretty sure she killed the crew of that little scavenger ship. And she told Hester about the man's uniform on the table. We have to tell Professor Wandry. Hester said, taking a step back toward Firenzo's little island of lunatic light. This time, it was Cynthia who caught hold of Hester's arm. Do you really think he doesn't know? She hated herself a little for the sick expression on Hester's face, the knowledge that she, Cynthia Feuerwerker, had just opened her mouth and killed something irreplaceable. Hester said, barely whispering even though they were still helmet to helmet. What should we do? Cynthia opened her mouth to say, What can we do? And all but physically choked on her own words. Because that was how war crimes happened. That was how you ended up a future ghost on an Arkhamer ship with the lines of a scowl bitten so deep in your face, you never really stopped frowning. And Hester was watching her hopefully. Hester, knowing what she'd done, was still willing to believe that Cynthia would do the right thing. Cynthia took a deep breath. If she killed the Charles Dexter Ward, how did she do it? I mean, you and Wandry said there were only two ways, and she clearly didn't cut him to pieces. So? She must have rigged some kind of galvanic motor, Hester said. If she hooked it up to the UPS, and a hospital ship would have to have one, even a live ship, that would take care of the power requirements. Cynthia got a good look at the wideness of Hester's eyes before she realized that here in the dark corridor, even with their helmets leaned up together, she shouldn't have been able to make out the details of her friend's expression. Hester stepped back slowly, her features revealed more plainly as Cynthia's shadow no longer fell across her face. Cynthia forced her gaze to the right. All along the passageway, bioluminescent runners were crawling with unexpected brilliance. Firenzo had reanimated the Charles Dexter Ward. Ah, shitballs, Hester said. that was part one of our story. Hope you enjoyed. Special thanks to our full cast of characters lending voices to this production. David Robison as Jamie Burlingame, Hananel Mavity as Madam President, Sarah Tolbert as Cynthia, Renee Chambliss as Hester, Abby Hilton as Meredith, Veronica Giguere as Dr. Fiorenzo, and John Smarr as Professor Wandry. Next week, we're diving right into part two to wrap things up, so keep all 16 of your eyes out for that. So, whopper of an episode this week, gonna close out early here and dive right into our 100 character story winner this week by listener Alphalas, with this one here. As the last words left my lips, I saw her in the mirror. Straining on the toilet, Bloody Mary yelled, Do you mind? I'm busy. Hey, well, that probably could have gone worse. At least she didn't eat your eyes. Although, 
That might not have been the end of the world in that situation. Follow us on Twitter if you do Twitter. We're at the Travelcast. Get the winners early each week. And hey, if you want to follow us in person, before I forget to mention, the Travelcast crew is heading down to DragonCon this weekend in Atlanta. If you're planning on going and want to meet up, we're giving away free CDs, shirts, etc. Also having a Travelcast fan meetup at Mama Ninfa's crappy-ass Mexican restaurant on Sunday for lunch. Send an email over to Travelcast at Travelcast.org. Let us know if you want details. Love to meet ya. So that's our show, folks. Remember, Travelcast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up our show. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Travelcast art director Bo Kyer. Check out his stuff at bokyer.com. So, our program is brought to you by myself, Nikki Drayden, Managing Editor, our Submissions Editor, Nathan Lee, Editor-at-Large, Matthew Bay, our Art Director, Bo Kyer, and with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, Jake Webb, and Jonathan McNeil. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you, there's nothing to ensure freshness like harvesting them yourself. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink And the bartender shouts last round An hour ago this place was loaded And noise filled the room like the smoke And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass Words were all slurred when spoke Yes, words were all splurred when spoke. In the dark corner table Sits Lance Fernandez, the boss next week's winner.